Hello, and welcome to the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association's podcast, Boiled Down. Joining me today is Troy Flanagan from the American Hotel and Lodging Association and Matt Walker from the National Restaurant Association. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us here today on our podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. So we're going to dive right in today and talk about some of the issues, uh, both, of course, on the lodging and the restaurant side. Uh, we've got uh, our special guests here, and we're very excited about that. Uh, Troy's actually in studio, was here with us last night at uh, our Taste Oregon legislative reception, which was a huge success. A lot of opportunities for our members to interact with the folks from the legislature, talk about some of the issues. Uh, in fact, I think I saw a couple of the legislators get cornered by a couple of our members on uh, restrictive scheduling and uh, some of the other issues that we're talking about. So uh, that was good. It was a great opportunity for that. Um, Troy, let's let's just start with you and uh, tell me some of the issues that AHNLA is kind of working on um, and helping the local associations uh, in the states. What's what's big on your plate right now? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think, as you know, in our inter- interactions, uh, there are a lot of issues that affect hospitality generally. Uh, there's also a fair amount that uh, affect lodging more specifically. Uh, we spend our time um, from a national association perspective, especially when in interaction with uh, state lodging and restaurant associations, focused on some of the issues that are really trending across various jurisdictions. Uh, every jurisdiction, every state has you know, unique uh, um, fights <laughs> that, that, that may never be seen elsewhere. But uh, some of those kind of trending uh, national issues include uh, you know, the relationship of traditional uh, uh, legitimate lodging operations with some of the, the new platforms such as Airbnb and VRBO and how that um, really interacts with uh, commercial lodging operators. I think we're seeing that uh, those types of uh, platforms are, uh, while they may have you know, had their genesis in truly sharing uh, your home or part of your home while you're there to make a little extra money, they've uh, grown uh, into more uh, commercial lodging operations or certainly uh, facilitated that, and there's a lot of data to back that up. Yeah, I was going to say, we've had a lot of issues here in Portland. Uh, we've been very active with our Portland Lodging Alliance on the short-term rental issue and uh, trying to make sure that the enforcement mechanisms are there. And uh, I know that both Jason and I have received communications in the last probably week uh, about other cities, uh, Salem, Astoria, Eugene, Lake Oswego. They're all taking on these regulations for short-term rentals. And so um, it is something that has become a, a big issue, obviously, for, for the lodging industry. And um, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, just, no I was just, uh, d- you know, before going too deep into that, I did you know, want to mention a couple other uh, kind of trending state issues, or at least ones that we're watching. I think uh, uh, here in the Northwest, it's worth watching what's going on in Seattle uh, last November uh, by way of a ballot referendum. Uh, Seattle voters overwhelmingly approved uh, an initiative that c- creates uh, a, a whole new set of mandates on uh, hotels over 100 rooms. Um, it was kind of wrapped in a, um, a, 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 a package or kind of the front message was about uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault of hotel workers. Uh, and so there's some provisions dealing with mandatory issuance of panic buttons for, for hotel workers. But uh, in addition to that, it also had some really strong mandates on uh, gold-plated health care, uh, worker retention uh, when properties change ownership, um, uh, creating a blacklist for uh, guests who have been accused of some type of uh, um, a negative interaction with hotel workers, but yet there isn't a way to uh, 
uh, adjudicate that. So right. uh, you could be uh, a guest could be placed on a blacklist without actually uh, going before the local authorities. Uh, and then there's a provision that waives all of this if uh, that hotel uh, enters into a collective bargaining agreement with uh, the local union. So uh, we've filed uh, litigation uh, along with our state association and the uh, local association, uh, lodging association in Seattle uh, against uh, the city uh, in that we believe it violates the single subject rule. So uh, there's some uh, hearings coming up later this month where we'll see how that goes. Uh, the, the, the one thing I would add from a kind of a broad perspective is that we expect that some form of that to be introduced as legislation in Chicago in the next month or so, and we're watching a few other cities as well. Great. Well, we'll be watching that closely as well. If I'm not mistaken, uh, that also included a limit on the amount of square footage that housekeepers could yeah, actually... Yeah, one, one of the, uh, as I said, it had, a, it had a laundry list of things that <laughs> would normally be um, discussed in a, uh, in a collective bargaining negotiation. Right. Uh, it, it would change... Uh, rather than a, a room attendance day being uh, measured or um, calculated based on how many rooms they had cleaned during a shift, it uh, sets a 5,000 square foot per shift limit. And if, uh, regardless of how uh, how long it t- takes to, to, to clean that amount of space, uh, that's considered a full shift. Anything over that is time and a half for the entire eight-hour shift. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. It's a whole new world. Who very difficult to budget for that. So that's for sure, yeah. Well, and I, I want to touch just briefly on the blacklisting issue because uh, to me it, that smacks of guilty until proven innocent. Uh, you've got a customer who comes in and a, uh, one of the employees accuses them of harassment, and uh, they can be placed on the blacklist. Is the customer notified that they're placed on the blacklist? Is that is there some communication to them that they're not welcome at that point? Uh, my understanding is, is there there is, or, or that that would be developed in the regulatory process. Um, interestingly, there's no mandate that that interaction has to be turned over to actual local police authorities. Mm-hmm. So you're in this legal limbo. Uh, it, it's, it essentially creates a new level, a new layer of bureaucracy or a hurdle between an actual crime or a purported crime and law enforcement, which... Just, just doesn't seem like wise right. policy. We're, we're creating new things that we don't, yeah, don't need and can't, shouldn't have. So, and that's a three-year blacklist. Is that right? That's my understanding. Yeah. So, um, wow. Well, um, as we've seen before, uh, some of these bad ideas uh, seem to start in either San Francisco or Seattle, and then migrate their way down to Portland. And uh, so, we appreciate your perspective on that. We'll we'll come back to you here in just a minute. But uh, Matt, I wanted to uh, kind of ask you the same question, uh, but obviously, as we talked about earlier on the federal level, um, what are some of the things that you're seeing for the restaurant industry uh, in Congress, and and maybe you can even talk just a little bit on. Uh, what you see with the Trump administration, you know, Andy Puzder was not uh, going to be appointed as our labor secretary. And so if you can give us any insight onto that, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe I'll start with the first part, which is the Trump administration, and then talk about some of the stuff that we're working on. Um, January 20th was, of course, his first day. So it's been five and a half weeks now that he's been in office. I, I think that his speech last night laid out a lot of what he's done to date. You know, probably one of his more significant achievements from his perspective and from the perspective of the administration would be the opportunity to appoint, um, or I should say nominate, a Supreme Court justice um, in Gorsuch. I do think that he'll be confirmed um, and placed on the bench, and I think that's probably going to be taking place within the next few months. They're going to be having hearings on him this month, and so that's going to be a big focus. And then, of course, the administration has been spending a lot of time on, on the various executive orders, 
They've got things like the non-military federal hiring freeze. They've got a regulatory executive order for every regulation that you put out. You have to get rid of two. <clears throat> They've approved the different Dakota Access and Keystone pipelines. And um, also all the immigration orders. And, of course, I didn't hit everything just then, but that sort of gives an idea of what they've done. So the administration, for their part, have been largely focused on the executive orders and what can be done in the short term directly by the president um, that doesn't require congressional approval. In, in the Senate and the House, um, there's been a little bit of a holdup, particularly in the Senate side, because, you know, as Mitch McConnell likes to say, you know, the Senate is in the personnel business. Um and it really is. A, lot, a tremendous amount of the Senate's time gets spent just in this confirmation process at the beginning of a new presidency. And on the Democratic side of the aisle, they've been, they've been pretty effective from the perspective of running the clock out on a lot of the cabinet nominations, uh, even under an expedited process, to the point where you're now five and a half, month, uh, five and a half weeks in and uh, the president doesn't have his team in place. And so... That's going to continue to suck up a lot of time. They, they just ran through, I think, two more uh, confirmations in the last few hours um, to try to fill the cabinet. And um, it's going to take a substantial amount of time for them to work through that process. From our perspective, the restaurant perspective, of course, what we care about uh, a great deal is some of the legislative pieces that could be moving in the near future. Obviously, health care um, and, and what they do in that regard, and I'm happy to talk about that uh, you know, on this podcast. Sure. That's going to be a big issue for us. Um, tax reform, uh, a lot of areas in regulation and overtime, the labor space, we're trying to find areas where we can be proactive. And then we're going to be playing defense in certain areas, too, where we, we haven't had to in recent years. And so you can think in terms of the immigration space, or swipe fees, which is the Durbin Amendment. That's a big issue. And, and so I'm happy to talk about any of those in, in greater detail. Fantastic. Well, yeah, I do want to touch just uh, right now on the immigration issue because we, we've seen the, the travel ban and then we saw it uh, rescinded and, and now there's a new one. And, and there's a, a lot of talk here, especially um, in the Portland area, about you know Portland is a sanctuary city and uh, Oregon is a sanctuary state. And we've got uh, ICE agents that are in the Multnomah County Courthouse uh, rounding up some folks. What, what do you see in the near future, anyway, uh, with the Trump administration with regard to some of the things that are happening with immigration? Yeah, so, I, I, you know, I, I think, and, and I certainly don't want to say that I can speak for the administration, but I think it's clear based on, on their actions and, and what was said both in the campaign and afterwards that this is going to continue to be a big focus for them. I don't, I don't think that's any big surprise. We've seen it, and it's one of the first things they did out of the box. I think that the president and the members of his team view this as a uh, linchpin to the election as one of the biggest issues that, that they campaign on. And so I, I do expect them to be spending a lot, of pr a lot of their time and energy on this. I sort of put it in one big bucket. You know, there's the, the border construction phase. And on that aspect, they're, they're already pushing forward on that. They're trying to get proposals coming up soon on that. They did do the executive director, as you, as you mentioned, uh, executive directive on um, sanctuary cities, a lot of directed resources towards deportation, and, and they, they state it as deportation of criminals, but as we know, it's much more broad than that. Mm -hmm. It's not traditional felonies. I should say, you know, it's, it's things also like falsifying a social security number, which, you know, obviously for undocumented workers, a lot of people would fall into that class, and I, and I think they're going to continue to spend a lot of time on that. Um, the extreme vetting piece of it, otherwise known as the travel ban, depending upon, you know, what language someone wants to use, 
clearly that was struck down in court. The president uh, has already worked through a change to that to try to address some of the legal issues that prohibit it from going through. My impression was that he was going to introduce that probably today or tomorrow or certainly within the next few days, but he wants to hold off on it because he got a bump from his speech last night and, and a lot of positive press from that. And so I think they want to wait to time it to not take away the energy and momentum that they had from the positive press hit from last night. Yeah, you have to take advantage of that when it happens, especially in this administration, I would say, right? Uh, absolutely. And and I do think, indeed, I, th- I think that they're going to be very aggressive in deportations and, and other stuff. And so, you know, of course, we have concerns. Um, we, we care about a legal process for immigrants, and, and we want to work with the administration however we can to try to help, you know, help out with our own workers and people in our workforce that we care a great deal about. I just wanted to uh, add on to that, especially with the uh, specific to the, the the travel ban, the extreme vetting. Uh, we're obviously watching that very closely from the lodging and, and travel perspective. Uh, 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 there's a, certainly an outsized echo effect uh, on uh, on tourists coming to the United States from well beyond those countries that, sure. that were identified. Uh, we're already seeing some. Uh, uh, Tangential, uh, tangential numbers from um, specifically you know, the UK. If you use search engine traffic, uh, you know, places like Las Vegas, Orlando, Tampa, uh, down you know forty, fifty percent just in searches for flight bookings and hotel bookings. So um, we're, we're definitely going to be engaged, and it's um, something that's very concerning to us here at the outset. Sure. Well, yeah, tourism obviously very important, and here in Oregon, it's a, a ten point. $8 billion industry. Uh, it's a great part of our export economy. And so um, anytime that uh, we're talking about reducing the number of folks that are coming to visit, uh, obviously that's going to affect our, our members as well, restaurant and lodging. So um, Matt, you mentioned the swipe fees, and I know that's uh, something that we haven't uh, talked a lot about here uh, at Orla, but uh, can you give us just a, a brief background on that and why that's an important issue for the restaurant industry? Yeah, certainly. So, so people may recall that Years back, um, for debit cards, and again, this currently in law only applies to debit card transactions, not to credit cards, but that that banks, particularly some of the biggest banks um, across our nation, were offering up all kinds of um, special programs and others to their their, um, customers, and as a result of what they were doing, they were charging exorbitant prices every time that someone swiped a debit card in one of our establishments restaurants, retail, anywhere else, um, these prices were such that they weren't in any way relational to what the actual costs are that were associated with, you know, actually running that transaction and, and working through that transaction. But but because banks, we're talking about the top 2% of banks in the nation have such a stronghold that, you know, retailers and others were not able to push back on this in any way. And as a result, you know, Swipe fees went from around $0.44 cents per transaction at that time, and, and it was addressed um, in the Senate through what's you know often referred to as the Durbin Amendment. People may, may remember hearing of it from that perspective. And it essentially required that banks have to make it more relational to the actual cost of the transaction itself. As a result, it was lowered down to $0.27 cents as opposed to $0.44 cents per transaction, and even with that, even with that, that's much more than what what it actually costs. There's a recent Fed report, I believe, that said that the average transaction would be more like four cents. And and so as a result, right now, 
a lot of restaurants across the nation got a little bit of a break from these extremely high debit card swipe fees. But in the House, there's this push to do Dodd-Frank reform and to roll back a lot of the, the Dodd-Frank reform, which this was in, the banking reform. And so the concern is that there will be an effort to get rid of this. And, and indeed, the chair of the House Finance Committee, um, I'm sorry, the House um, Committee that has jurisdiction over this was not the Finance Committee, uh, is looking to possibly include in the legislation getting rid of this. And so we're fighting both in the House and the Senate and hopeful that we don't lose this important thing that's helped out businesses for a long time. I appreciate that, Matt. We'll go ahead and we'll make sure that we keep our members informed about that and any help we can be, obviously, uh, we want to do that. So uh, it's a great time for us to just take a quick break. Um, I am speaking with Troy Flanagan, Vice President, State and Local Government Affairs from the American Hotel and Lodging Association. And on the phone, we have Matt Walker, Vice President of Government Affairs from the National Restaurant Association. We will be back in just a moment. Are you in need of quality food handler training and certification? Orla is one of the largest and first providers of online food handler training in Oregon. Approved by the state, Orla's food handler training is quick and simple to complete, with online courses available 24-7. Training and certification costs only $9, and the card is valid statewide for three years. Get started today at OregonFoodHandler.com. All right, welcome back. You're listening to Boiled Down, the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association's podcast. You can find us at OregonRLA.org, and if you have questions, if you've got topics that you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at info at OregonRLA.org, and you can find us on Twitter, it's at Orla Boiled Down. And again, joining me today in studio, Troy Flanagan from the American Hotel and Lodging Association, the Vice President of State and Local Government Affairs. If you'd like to get in touch with Troy, it's T. Flanagan at ahla.com. And joining us on the phone, Matt Walker, the Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Restaurant Association. He can be reached at mwalker at restaurant.org. So we're back, and I want to go back to Troy and, and talk just for a couple of minutes about uh, the short-term rentals. We, we touched briefly on that, and as, as I mentioned, we've got a lot of cities here in Oregon that are starting to look at some of the regulations. Uh, Portland in particular, uh, with Airbnb, Airbnb just doing their one host, one place rule here, um, which is obviously successful and helpful in, in kind of limiting the number of illegal hotels. Um, I know that there have been some other cities, uh, New Orleans and Chicago, that have worked beyond just collecting the tax. Um, there's a lot of other ways that we need to make sure that uh, these short-term rentals are, are in compliance with the existing regulations or regulations that need to be put in place. So, Troy, maybe you can talk about um, that conversation and, and how that's been going. Sure. Um, first off, I would, I'd like to say it's great to see that Portland is revisiting what they tried a few years ago, they were, uh, along with San Francisco, one of the first jurisdictions to to take a look at the rise of essentially illegal hotels um, facilitated by sites and platforms like Airbnb. Uh, both of those jurisdictions, Portland and San Francisco, uh, took a crack at it in 2014 and have uh, quickly found that the, their laws that were put on the books were essentially unenforceable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, that shows and what we feel is that there has to be uh, a more a more transparent cooperation between the the cities uh, and the states that uh, are trying to enforce their existing laws uh, and the actual platforms 
uh, or else uh, it, it's impossible to, to have an efficient enforcement of what's on the books, much less uh, think of, of ways to, 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 to better address the, the, the repercussions. So yeah. we're glad to see that Portland's uh, revisiting that. Um, <clears throat> I think in the, in the time since Portland first enacted its ordinance, uh, we've seen a lot of other jurisdictions, well, dozens and dozens of states and cities have, have, have started debates. Uh, a few of them have completed debates. Uh, one notable one is Chicago last year, which um, we were very engaged in, Airbnb was very engaged in, and, and ultimately we felt a, a, a somewhat comprehensive solution that we think will, will go a long way in addressing some of the problems was, was uh, passed and is in the process of being enacted. Um, and so it has it has a lot of good good things that we think um, create a balance for folks who want to uh, engage in, in, in renting out units, uh, especially while they're there or their primary unit, um, with the repercussions of what it means to take more and more housing stock away from the residents of that city and turn it over to tourists, essentially, without any of the um, oversight. Sometimes the taxes are collected, sometimes they're not. Um, certainly, in most jurisdictions, there's there's no uh, oversight in any way similar to what is applied to c- commercial lodging operators such right. as B&Bs, hotels, small inns. And so I think you know, we think Chicago went, went, a, went a long way uh, towards doing that. Uh, there's some other active debates uh, going on right now that I think uh, folks in Oregon should watch. City of Los Angeles uh, has had a debate underway for the better part of a year at this point, and hopefully that'll be coming to a close in the next few months. Um, one one uh, state that I would note just in the past few days, uh, the state of Virginia, which you know has uh, you know a, a, a entirely Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, um, the, the legislature passed pretty overwhelmingly legislation that that affirms the role of local governments in regulating short term rentals as they always have. I mean, mm-hmm. Local governments have been providing guidance and taxes and zoning and land use, and health and safety. Um, you know, for decades since since uh, commercial lodging was really a, a thing, um, and so that's been under threat with a lot of these conversations about how to address short term rentals. Is um, you know, there's a there's a push from some factions that uh, this is better left to to state governments, and it's uh, just simply not the role of, of government uh, local governments to be in that. We would obviously push back and say this is this is not a new thing. This is not right. um, you know this is not like local governments getting into wages or scheduling. This is something that local governments have been doing since local governments were formed. <laughs> so um, uh, we were happy to see that the legislature passed, and hopefully the governor will sign legislation affirming that local governments have that role, uh, as well as providing a statewide registration sh- system for short term rentals, which allows that um, more efficient enforcement of the laws on the books, which I think um, places like uh, Portland and San Francisco could benefit from greatly. That'd be great. I know one of the critical pieces is the the data sharing, you know, the information, because to me, the analogy I use is uh, without knowing uh, how many units a company has on a platform, you know, whether it's a Vacasa or an Airbnb or something, we have no way of knowing if they're, uh, you know, paying the correct tax. And so I always say it would be like if I went to the IRS and told them that I made $20,000 last year, but I wasn't going to show them my paycheck stubs. I was just going to send in my, my check for what I owed them in taxes. Yep. Um, and, and so it, to me, it's, it's fascinating that, um, that we're, we're having to make these individual agreements with companies when we have laws on the books. And, and as you said, it's difficult to enforce, but, um, hopefully we're making some headway. And- yeah, I think so. Um, I, 
paying paying your taxes is the is the, the least things that uh, of the things that uh, you should be doing if you're engaging in some type of commercial lodging, uh, whether it's just inviting someone in to sleep on your couch or, or not. And I think most governments recognize that. And uh, we're glad to see Airbnb uh, at least step to the plate and try to make that easier. Um, I think that uh, our concern is uh, when, when we uh, have seen that particular company make agreements with various jurisdictions is that it's uh, very unique and preferential, doesn't provide the uh, the transparency that that um, the taxing authorities need to ensure that they're getting the right amount of money. And then, um, it, as you alluded to, the data uh, be- beyond simply the, the numbers and the rates, as hotels would have to provide, is important when we talk about getting at what the real issue is. It's not... Um, it's not the folks who are who are truly engaging in the sharing economy and inviting someone into their home okay. uh, or their garage apartment or their basement uh, for uh, for an occasional basis to make a few extra dollars or to f- afford to live in a, an expensive city like Portland or San Francisco or New York. Um, the, the concern and the and the the growing proportion of the revenue of companies like Airbnb is really from folks who are engaged in commercial lodging, yeah. folks who have a unit offered for rent year-round on a nightly basis that they don't live in. Or they have 10, 15, 20 units in a single building that they offer for rent on a nightly basis year-round. Basically running an illegal hotel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think with the data that only those companies have, because it's it's their data, that can be weeded out. And we can, we can allow the occasional renter, the person who wants to engage in the sharing economy to continue doing that sure. uh, while addressing some of these bad actors. Yeah. Well, and I know, again, consumer protection obviously is huge, you know, as a, as a commercially operated hotel, motel, or an Airbnb, when you're licensed and you've got your smoke detectors and you've got all the things that you need to do to keep people safe. Uh, we're not always seeing that with some of these short-term rentals. They're not being uh, inspected. They don't have all the proper licensing, uh, commercial liability insurance, those kinds of things. And um, so hopefully, as again, as this progresses, uh, some of those start to fall into place so that they are falling into compliance with the, the rest of the lodging industry. Yeah, and I would just say just a, a final point on that. I mean, that gets at uh, why uh, a solution needs to look beyond simply uh, taxes is that uh, – you know, not only are you getting the proper taxes, and in many jurisdictions that includes some type of uh, visitor uh, uh, destination marketing fund fund for uh, tourist promotion. Um, even if that that program is funded and people come to your state, they're expecting a certain standard. Um, you know, and if that standard is subpar, they're going to go away. Uh, not necessarily blaming the the host that they stayed with or whose home they rented, but it's going to be a, a black eye on that city or that state. Sure. So you have, you have certain standards when you when you promote tourists to come to your state. You want to provide them with a certain level of experience. Yeah, well, that's for sure. Uh, well, I'd like to switch gears for uh, just a second, Matt. I'm going to throw it back to you and uh, talk about an issue that I know is important to really everybody in the hospitality industry and, and beyond, and, and that's the issue of uh, health care and the Affordable Care Act, uh, the possible repeal and replacement. Um, what, what are you seeing at the, at the federal level, and what kinds of insights can you, can you offer to us? Yeah, thank you. So, so right now, Republicans are obviously looking at what they can do in this space, and they're working to try to do so under a unique process um, in the Senate, budget reconciliation. Normally in the Senate, you have to get 60 votes to get anything passed for almost every major um, measure that's out there. Um, but through budget reconciliation, it's one of the ways that you can do it with a, a bare majority. 
And so from a, the perspective of Republicans looking at this as something that can be done um, sort of on their own, that's a positive sign. The, the negative sign, though, and I think there's a lot of misnomers out there because people think that you can just jam this through this process and do all the health reform. You really can't. There, there's a lot of limitations in what you can do in budget reconciliation. Specifically, you can only do things that increase or decrease um, the budget, and you can't increase the deficit over 10 years. There's all kinds of different things in place here, which essentially means that you, you've got a lot of limitations on what you can do. And so I think the expectation is they're going to try to do as much as they can do under budget re reconciliation. Um, the big one, obviously, for us would be trying to eliminate the penalty on the employer mandate. A good example of what I just talked about in terms of limitations is they may not be able to get rid of the employer mandate under budget reconciliation. It may still be in place, but what they can do because it affects the budget is they could get rid of the penalty for employers. And so although employers would technically still be required to offer health insurance to their employees, there's no penalty for not doing so. And so that's how they'll try to work around some of this in the first instance to try to address some of these issues. But the bigger issue is that once you get beyond the things that you can do in that limited capacity, then you have to actually be able to pass legislation that you can go through the regular process in the Senate, which means that you've got to get at least eight Democrats to agree with you, even if you hold all your Republicans, in sort of what is going to be the next step in the healthcare world and, and what, are, what are the Republican ideas to try to um, push forward and advance that. We as an association have a lot of different um, priorities in this space. I mean, just, just mentioning a few off the top of my head, you've got the employer mandate issue. We have a lot of issues around the taxes. How, how is a new plan going to be um, paid for? Would it be in a way that might be harmful to the industry, or would it be in a positive way? We'd like to make sure that any new plans that go into place allow employers to have access to more plan types that they can offer to their employees. We want to have a lot more flexibility in, in meeting the essential health benefits that we have to require to our employees. Um, more price transparency in the system to try to drive down prices. Also looking at things like medical malpractice to lower prices. And so it's a long way of saying that, that there is a lot of activity in this space that, that, that we're going to be extremely, extremely engaged in. And, and I think it's going to be a, a more difficult and drawn out process than a lot of people think. I think that the initial reconciliation bill will address some things, but, but a lot of it will have to come afterwards that we're going to be working on. That's great. I was going to say that is a uh, very long list that you just gave us there. And, and I'm sure there's a few other things that probably could fit onto that as well. So it doesn't sound like it's something that uh, is, is going to be repealed maybe as quickly as some people were thinking it would be or hoping it would be. Yeah, I, I think I think it's going to have to be a process, you know, and one thing that I think that a lot of people forget, too, is even after you pass the law, you have to really consider what happens to the people that are currently on the exchanges or the people that need health care. You can't just sort of cut them off mid-process and have them without health care. Sure. And so that's going to have to be addressed, and so there's got to be some sort of a phase-in period or a way to address what happens to that pool of people. But even if, if you get beyond the fact that you do what you can do in budget reconciliation and then you do a separate bill and you pass sort of your health care plan and what you want to do, it takes a tremendous amount of time to actually just even write the regulations for that and put in place the process to implement it. And so, you know, again, I think a lot of people think it's going to happen overnight and this is going to be a very long process. But the key is, is that they're moving in that direction and they're, and they're moving uh, quickly.
Fantastic. Well, one other issue, Matt, that I, I wanted to touch on with you, and I, I know it's also a big one, but uh, tax reform. Uh, what, what can you tell us about what's happening with that right now at the federal level? Yeah, so I mentioned budget reconciliation. That they're going to use that as well for tax reform. And again, it is. it sounds like it's used often and it isn't. This is one of the two very limited instances where they're going to do that. And Republicans are interested in using budget reconciliation to put forth uh, their plan on tax reform. The plan currently isn't definitively in place. A lot of people have talked about, you know, a border adjustment tax of some form. That's one of the things that that is getting a lot of momentum in D.C. You know, from our perspective, we have basically three major priorities in the tax reform space. First is that we want to simplify the code. Second, we want to reduce rates substantially. Um, and, And by substantially, it has to be far enough down that it offsets some of the things that we'll be losing, such as the work opportunity tax credit um, and other things that our industry uses heavily. And then third, and this part is really key, is there's a lot of talk of corporate tax reform, but 75% of restaurants are are not corporations. They're either partnerships or LLCs or, or they're set up with a different corporate structure. And so we need to make sure that any tax reform not only offers lowering corporate rates, but also applies to you know those within our industry, and, and that's huge. Sure, yeah. And then, then finally, I would like to say one other piece that's extremely important to us in this process is you know, the FICA tip credit, which, which says that employers do not have to pay FICA taxes on tipped income above 515 that, employers earn, that employees earn. And, and so that's a key piece for us as well, and, and how is that going to be treated in this process? So get a lot of activity to do in that space as well. No no shortage of, of items to handle on either end, that's for sure. And uh, of course, here in Oregon, uh, we've got a lot of stuff going on in the legislature as well. Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes on our advocacy watch. But um, before we let you gentlemen go, I wanted to touch on uh, two other quick things. The first is um, the DC trips that we have coming up uh, in conjunction with both your organizations. So March 28th and 29th, uh, Jason Brandt, president and CEO of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, and myself, uh, will be bringing about a half a dozen uh, restaurant owners to the public affairs conference and the meetings on Capitol Hill for the National Restaurant Association. And then in May, May 16th and 17th, uh, we'll be bringing some lodging operators to the uh, American Hotel and Lodging Association Legislative Action Summit uh, back in D.C. as well. So uh, we're grateful to the members that are joining us for that. Those are important conversations that we need to have with our elected uh, leaders in Congress, um, and it's important. And I know that uh, this kind of work doesn't happen without the support of members. Uh, You guys are both membership organizations as we are. And of course, one of our big events uh, that helps support our political action committee is our One Big Night, which is coming up on Tuesday, May 23rd. It's our industry's annual dinner and auction to help support the PAC. And at a minimum, we hope you could come and attend and, uh, you know, maybe pick up a couple of auction items. If you can donate an auction item as a restaurant owner or a lodging operator, that would be fantastic. And we have a lot of opportunities for sponsorship as well. And so um, Matt and Troy, I'm going to put the invitation out to you guys as well. If you'd like to come back to Oregon and join us for that, we'd love to have you guys. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll give you time to check your calendars before I strong arm you into doing that. There, so. <laughs> there you go. But uh, I want to thank you both again. Troy Flanagan from the American Hotel and Lodging Association, the Vice President of State and Local Government Affairs. He can be reached at tflanagan at ahla.com. And Matt Walker from the National Restaurant Association, Vice President of Government Affairs. He can be reached at mwalker at restaurant.org. 
And any last thoughts that you want to go, Troy? Um, I, I guess I'd, uh, I'd, I'd be remiss and I'd probably get in a little bit of trouble back home if I didn't mention that uh, we did just uh, a couple of weeks ago release uh, an, a, a new uh, industry branding campaign under the banner of Dreams Happen Here. Uh, it's really meant to highlight some new uh, data from Oxford Economics. Uh, I would encourage uh, hoteliers and policymakers to visit ahla.com slash dreams. Uh, there's some great data on the impact not only of of the, the raw numbers of jobs and revenue and spending related to the hotel industry, but also the the, the opportunity and the path towards uh, careers that the industry provides. Great. Well, thanks, Fred. That's a great plug. We'll, we appreciate that. We'll pass along that information as well. Matt, any last thoughts from you? Yeah, I, I guess the last thought I would say is thank you to you for hosting this and giving us this opportunity to talk to people. And, and obviously, thank you as well to those who took the time to listen in. I mean, the fact that they're listening in shows that they, they care about these issues and they care about being part of the process. And, and so I, I do appreciate that opportunity and always happy to work with you. Troy, Matt, thank you so much again. I appreciate the time. I appreciate you being here. We'll be right back with the Boiled Down Advocacy Watch and your member benefit. Get your staff food handler trained and certified by Oregon's highest quality training provider. Orla provides easy-to-follow interactive training that is valid statewide for three years. Employees can get the state-mandated food handler card they need on their schedule with online courses available 24-7. And now for only $9. Go to OregonFoodHandler.com today. Welcome back to the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association podcast, Boiled Down. It's now time for our Advocacy Watch. We've had a couple of things come up lately that we want to let you know about. Uh, the first is restrictive scheduling. We actually have two bills at the Oregon Legislature right now. The first is Senate Bill 828, and there was a hearing just a couple of days ago on this bill. We did have folks from the industry who came and spoke against it. Uh, this is the restrictive scheduling bill that would force employers to pay uh, four hours of predictability pay if they had to call somebody in with less than 24 hours notice and would require employers to have their schedules laid out at least two weeks in advance. Uh, there's a lot of information uh, online. We've, we've got the bill tracking that we're doing on our website, OregonRLA.org, so you can find more information there. But Know that we are opposed to this and its sister bill, uh, House Bill 2193, which has exactly the same language. So we're going to be looking for folks to come down and uh, testify against it, how it's going to affect your business uh, and your employees. And uh, we're hoping that folks will be able to join us for that. Also in the legislature, uh, Senate Bill 301. It provides that uh, conditioning the employment on refraining from using any substance that is lawful to use in this state is an unlawful employment practice. And so essentially uh, what that breaks down to is that if someone has marijuana in their system, you are not allowed to uh, fire them or discipline them based on that fact because marijuana is now a legal substance and obviously we're opposed to this bill as well there has been a hearing on it and we'll keep you informed and again you can check us out oregonrla.org uh, and get more information on those other bills that we're tracking finally uh, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast there's a lot going on around uh, short-term rentals uh, in the portland area the bureau of development services has just enacted a new ordinance where there's no grace period now so the fines start at $1,000 for your first offense, $3,000 for your second offense, and $5,000 for your third and subsequent offenses. Uh, there is no grace period, 
and to fix those, that's just, uh, you're going to be paying that fine right away. So um, we applaud those efforts by Portland to crack down on these uh, basically illegal hotels in the Portland area. And there will be discussions coming up in Salem, in Astoria, in Eugene, and Lake Oswego. If you hear about anything going on with short-term rentals in your city or county or locality, uh, please get in touch with us. You can email us, info at oregonrla.org, or me personally, astley at oregonrla.org. And we, we want to hear about that. You are the eyes and ears for this organization out there. So uh, with that, uh, we'll move right into our member benefit. And as we hear more and more about online booking scams um, and the need for increased protections for consumers, it benefits our industry to be knowledgeable and strategic uh, with your digital marketing. Orla has partnered with Travel Oregon to develop a quarterly webinar series designed to share expertise and best practices on digital marketing strategies. These webinars will be geared towards smaller independent businesses in the hospitality industry and they'll cover such topics as analytics, social media, and online reputation management. And if you don't know what any of those terms mean, it sounds like uh, you might want to attend this seminar to find out. The first of the series, called Clever Tools for Clever Marketing, is on March 17th. Orla members have access to these webinars at no charge, and you can visit oregonrla.org backslash webinars for more details. So just a final reminder, we've got one big night, the industry's annual dinner and auction benefiting our political action committee coming up Tuesday, May 23rd. That's going to be at the Embassy Suites in Tigard near Washington Square there. And again, you can help by attending, uh, you can help by donating an auction item, or you can help by sponsoring or doing all three. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities there for folks to get involved. We appreciate that. Your support means that we're able to continue to do the kind of advocacy work that we need to for, for this industry. This has been another episode of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association's podcast, Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>